Right, the next question, Tom, is from Tim C. Tom, do we have to reincarnate in sequence? What I mean here is that if we are to experience this rule set again, do we have to continue from where it left off? Where well, we left off? It depends on what he means by where you know we left off. Obviously, when you uh, reincarnate into another avatar, you're not right exactly where you left off. You know, you left off. You were, uh, you know, an old man, 90 years old, uh, you know, living in an old folks home and you had been a lumberjack all your life. And now you're, uh, you know, a little girl living in China and you've just been accepted to ballet school. You know, so you're obviously not starting where you left off in that sense. But in the sense of the quality that you have gained, the quality of your consciousness, there you start where you left off. Now, you get a whole different set of decisions to make. This little girl who's going to go to ballet school in China, you have a whole different set of decisions to make, the different choices, different decision set, but you start with the same quality of consciousness to work with. You still have to start at the beginning. You still have to know the difference between an apple and, you know, and your mother, and you have to learn a lot of things, but you start with that quality. That's because quality is accumulative. It's a cumulative thing. That's the whole point. You accumulate quality. You accumulate, uh, you know, lower and lower entropy states. Um, that has to happen serially because it, uh, you know, learning is like that. You you have to learn the easy stuff before you learn the hard stuff. You can't get the square B unless you've been to square A. Education tends to be that way. So I'm not sure what he means. Do we always have to start, you know, where we left off? As far as quality goes, yes. As far as your incarnation, your decision space, the things you have to deal with, uh, you know, what your life is like, no, not at all. So I'm not quite sure what that question is about. If somebody maybe can give me some other hints here, I'll say more. But I think that's about all I can say about it. Well, hopefully, Tom, if um, if Tim C. hasn't had the answer to that question, then he'll get in touch with us. He could probably quickest if he emails me, Keith at mbtevents.com, once he's seen this, if that didn't answer the question, and we can maybe reformulate it and ask it again in the future. The next one is from Wolf God. Uh, Tom, one of the deepest questions of physicist Stephen Hawkins was, if I remember correctly, why is there something rather than nothing? So can you comment on why there would be an AUM and whatever caused AUM rather than that nothing? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. Why, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? And there is no, there can be no specific answer to that because from our viewpoint, that's knowledge beyond our, you know, beyond our scope. We're not going to have that knowledge, but we can do some, um, should we say, uh, conjecture about it. And the conjecture that's normally been done, kind of the standard view here, is that where did the something come from if everything was nothing? So why did we get something? And that something happened by chance. It started out as a random event. So think of it this way. There was nothing. There was no information. Remember, this is all about information. You can think in your mind of a, of a field of randomly sorted ones and zeros, no information, no patterns at all, okay? Now, 
randomly, just because chance would have it this way. Those ones and zeros are always milling around and changing and going this way and that way, but they're always just random. But the randomness, they're not static. They're not just sitting there. They're, they're moving. They're changing. So you have this, this field of random ones and zeros that can change, and it does continually change. And just by accident, it happens to form a pattern. Some sort of pattern gets formed just by random chance. And it just so happens that this pattern that got formed is a pattern that has its own logic. See, patterns have a certain logic. That's what patterns are. They're a little piece of logic, if you will, that uh, defines the pattern. It has its own logic, and this logic is such that it tends to perpetuate itself. It's, it's self-perpetuating sort of logic. Now, that's not impossible. We can probably come up with several things that, that once started tend to perpetuate themselves. You know, like uh, you know, a hole in your shirt. Once started, it tends to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and the hole just keeps growing because that's just the way life works. You see, that's the way things work. So there's lots of things. Uh, water dripping out of a bucket, you know, it just keeps going until the hole gets bigger and bigger because the water going out of it will erode the hole. The water will actually make that hole bigger over time, even if the bucket never empties of water. So there's some things, patterns that start, that just have a, such a pattern that they tend to continue. They, they can tend to reinforce themselves. So now if we have a pattern, and patterns define rules. You can't have a pattern without, or a pattern that's going to define itself with, with rules. So now let's say some rules develop around this self-perpetuating pattern, and the rule is the self-perpetuation. Maybe it's a pattern where if you have a bunch of uh, uh, X's and O's on a board, every time you change this X to an O, all the ones, all the X's next to O's change to O's, and all the O's next to X's change to X's. And that sort of thing just goes on and on, you see. So we get a little rule. Now what we've defined is a cellular automata. Well, cellular automatas are just little patterns that have rules, very simple rules. And our scientists have shown that a cellular automata has, can have two very uh, impressive character, characteristics. One, because it's a process fractal, it has no boundary. They can just go on and on and on forever, just like evolution. It's an open-ended thing. It doesn't have a point where it says, I'm done, I quit. It just, there's always more moves. There's always something else to do. And some of the cellular automata are like that. They just keep generating patterns. Fractals are like that. They just keep on generating patterns on and on and on. There's no end. It's open-ended. Well, this is a process fractal, and it can just be an open-ended thing. The other neat thing that the cellular automata can do is that they can emulate a general purpose computer. They can perform logic. They can do all the things that a computer can do. So if you had a cellular automata that eventually gained those two properties, then you'd have something that could grow up and be the, you know, ohm or the larger consciousness system. Now, that's hand-waving conjecture. It's not like, you know, this is what had to happen. It's just like, this is a possibility that you could get something out of nothing when that nothing wasn't really an absence of everything. That nothing was a, a, uh, a field of 
randomness. There were possibilities, but everything was random. There was no information. So in a system that's information, that's nothingness, no information. So a random event could eventually just happen that had the right stuff to turn into a cellular automata, which has the right stuff to turn into a larger consciousness system. That's the, that's the conjecture. But that's not an answer. That's not like this is what happened. It's just conjecture. But at least there is that much. And if you look up cellular automata in, uh, say, um, I don't know, Berkeley or Stanford, one of those two uh, uh, have, have a lot of, of their coursework and things up on the Internet. If you look up cellular automata and find the right sites, you'll find this very thing that I just discussed as a, as a possibility of, uh, you know, how, um, you know, how everything got started as a source, as a beginning, how you get something out of nothing. And evidently, it's mathematically um, okay. The mathematics show that this indeed is a possibility. Now, obviously, it's not something that would necessarily just happen easily. There may be billions and trillions of random things before such a pattern ever developed. But, you know, that's, uh, that's a possibility. So that's how. But Stephen Hawking said that made a very good question. That's a hard thing to understand. And there's no way I think that we will ever get a pat answer to that. This is exactly how it happened because we're not in a place that that information will ever be available to us other than as conjecture. But now conjecture that meets all the, you know, the, the kind of works really well eventually may be considered as a fact, but it's not a fact that is you know, that has to be that way. It's like, here is one way that it could have been. See, that's not really so much a, a fact fact. You know, if there's, if there's some possibility that that's not right, it could be some other way, but we just don't know what other way that might be. Then uh, that's what we're going to be stuck with. So I hope that answers this question. It's uh, not a real satisfactory answer, but I think it's the best that we'll ever be able to do. I think so, Tom. Uh, listen, we're going back to Eric. Eric's got the next question for you. Another one from Eric. Okay, so I have another question related to sleep. Um, uh, according to MBT, um, dreaming is just a different virtual reality than this one. So when we go to sleep, we stop receiving the PMR data stream, and instead we receive another data stream. The thing I don't really understand, though, is why is the dream virtual reality influenced by um, things that happen to the uh, PMR avatar? For example, if I'm sleeping in an uncomfortable position, I tend to get nightmares or, you know, stuff like that. So why, why would the PMR brain of the PMR avatar influence the, you know, the the other virtual reality. Okay. If you're sleeping in an uncomfortable position, you get a nightmare. Well, the consciousness is aware, of course, of the feedback from the avatar. You know, by feedback, I mean the consciousness is, is talking to the computer. Computer sends things back, giving the consciousness the state of the avatar. So the consciousness is aware of the state of the avatar. 
And if that avatar, if the rule set in that avatar says, oh, this hurts, uh, you know, my arm's asleep, uh, you know, my knee hurts or something like that, the consciousness gets that because that's feedback from the, uh, you know, from the computer describing what the rule set is is doing to the to the avatar because of the way the avatar is laying down. Well, if the consciousness gets that information, then that can be incorporated in the, you know, that's data that it's getting, that it's impinging on it. That data coming in can be incorporated into the data stream that it's getting in the dream reality. Those two can get merged together. So you have data from different sources tend to get merged. We don't have data doesn't come to us with a tag on it. You don't get data, you know, from your imagination, from some other IUOC and from the larger conscious system. Those three sources of data don't have tags on them that says where they're from. And they all get mixed and you can't really tell which is, you know, which is which. It's all just information with without any idea of the source of the information. So we never get to see the source, only information. So here I have a consciousness. He's getting information from the rule set about how uncomfortable the avatar is, and he's doing something in a dream. And as far as the conscious knows, that's just, it's all the data coming to him, and it's easy for him to mix it all up. Just like if we get data from, uh, I don't know, we get we get data from another IUOC, and we may interpret that as our own uh, as our own imagination or our own uh, intuition we just kind of mix it all up because there's no way of telling the source that's one of the things about your data stream you never get to know the source of the data you only get the data so it's just a natural thing that that would tend to get kind of glommed together and combined into a kind of a, a single thing so and when uh, like when the avatar of the PMR virtual reality starts sending uh, enough data to the consciousness, then the consciousness eventually will shift back to PMR. Yeah. So uh, if that if that pain gets to be enough, you know, if the if the message the data it's getting from the from the PMR because uh, of the rule set, the way the arms bent or or the something like that, then if that gets insistent enough then the consciousness will be drawn to that data stream becomes primary. That data stream is the one that needs to respond to. So that will, the person will then come back to, they'll wake up and roll over or, you know, take the rock out, you know, out from, uh, you know, under the covers where they are. They'll do something to make a change or maybe they're cold and they'll pull covers up and then they'll go back. So, yes, you'll wake up when you get data that grabs the consciousness's attention to the point that it drops other things that it's doing. And it's like that for us in all sorts of things. You know, the thing that is more dominating, right, is where our attention goes. And the other stuff kind of gets left behind. But that rule set is saying pain, 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 or I'm cold, you know, I'm shivering. It's, it's uncomfortable here. That's what the rule set says. Because the skin temperature has gone down, you know, below what's comfortable. And that data is still being sent to that consciousness. The consciousness isn't paying much attention to it because he's doing a dream. But as that gets more insistent, they get mixed up together. And if it gets even more insistent, the consciousness will go back to the, you know, to the PMR data stream. So can we train ourselves to sort of remain in the dream virtual reality even though the 
like this the stimulus from the PMR gets really yes we can we can remain in it and we can actually parallel process a while so we can remain in that dream reality while we decide that we need to reach down and pull those covers up because we're freezing and we can do that without ever getting out of the dream we don't have to do one or the other but we can learn to stay in in both and then you'll let once the covers are up and the problem solved then you'll be right you know 100% back in the dream but for a while maybe you're only 50-50 you know but you don't have to let go of it all together okay great thank you how about answered your question eric uh vanessa are you ready there she is she's coming in okay can you hear me okay yes we can Okay, great. So uh, my question goes back to lowering entropy and letting go of fear. Uh, I understand that in order to get in touch with my fears, I need to be very aware of my emotional state. And I can trace back negative emotions to an underlying fear that's creating that negative emotion. Okay, so now... Is this always the case every time I experience a negative emotion? So, for example, if I'm watching a movie and it's sad, then and I'll cry. So is that is it triggering a fear within me, or is, is it just empathy? Like, what's going on there? Because that's a negative emotion. No, that's not, uh, that's not the same thing. That's a bit different. If you're watching a movie and it's sad, then that's empathy. You're just, um, you know, putting yourself in the place of the character – and that, that would be a, that, that's just an empathetic reaction. That's not necessarily a negative reaction. Having empathy isn't isn't negative. All of your feelings don't have to be negative. Some of your feelings are joyful, and some of your feelings are neutral, like empathy. You know, it's a it's it's a good thing. So it's not every feeling. So just because you're crying doesn't mean that it's negative. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's what was mixing me up because I, when I feel sad, and I feel, I bet I get tears too when I see somebody do an act of kindness. I, I, I have tears. I'm like, this guy's so beautiful. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, why am I yeah. crying? So just trying yeah. to understand. Yeah. Now, now you can be watching a movie and see something that makes you angry. Okay. Now yeah. that's different. If you see something in a movie and it makes you angry, and that is a that's probably more likely to be a negative emotion. Well, I guess it depends on what, what it is about it that makes you makes you angry. Again, if it's, uh, you know, you've seen a, a documentary on something, and the documentary tells you about how these awful people are doing an awful thing, and you get angry and upset about it, that's your ego. That's That's some fear. Otherwise, if you didn't have that fear and ego, you'd see those awful people doing an awful thing, and you'd understand the bigger picture. That that is that kind of things happen because people have very low quality of consciousness and so on, and right. it wouldn't be something that would make you angry. It still might make you sad, and it still might want to make you cry, and that's okay. There's a component of love that's sad, uh, but gotcha. uh, you see, but it doesn't mean it'll make you angry. See, that's different. Right. Okay. Okay. And another question for you, Tom. Do you ever have like a bad day <laughs> where sometimes you get frustrated and like, cause I'm, I heard you say in traffic, you used to get frustrated a little bit. 
So was that some fear coming up for you there? That you were yeah, a long, yeah, long time ago. I don't know, maybe 20, 30 years ago or so. Um, I would be, uh, I didn't get angry. I never got really angry. I wasn't an angry driver. I didn't have road rage or anything like that. But I would tend to be annoyed with people who were doing foolish things, you know, on the highway. Um, and I don't do that now. I don't get annoyed with them. I just understand that's just where they are, you know. In their minds, they're doing the best they can. And they are who they are, whether they're responsible or irresponsible or whether they're just, you know, maybe they're just, uh, you know, 80 years old and uh have to drive really slow because they can't drive a car any faster than that safely, but they still need to get out and get groceries and do other things. So everybody just needs to, you know, cut them a little slack and, and give them a break and not uh, get upset with them because they're clogging up the traffic. So you have, once you get a bigger picture, then you don't tend to get annoyed with people who are doing things that you would rather they didn't do. You have to accept that, People just do things the way they have to do it, and you just need to live with that. This is a multiplayer game, and sometimes you're just going to have to sit and wait, uh, even though you're in a hurry to get where you're going, and life's like that. So deal with it positively, you see. So, yeah, that was a long time ago, though, that that, uh, that, that happened. It doesn't bother me so much anymore. It's when I was young and foolish. Um, <laughs> but, no, daily, on a daily basis, I don't. Uh, you know, sometimes I get concerned about things, but I basically figure it'll all work out one way or another. And, uh, you know, okay. The thing I guess that I get concerned about is I get so much to do and not enough time to do it in. I'll be behind. I'll have 300 emails that haven't been looked at yet. Uh, I've got a presentation to do in a week and I haven't started that yet. And, you know, these things start to build up like that. And when they build up like that and, but it's Mother's Day, and uh, the children are coming over that weekend, and, you know, there's just all this other stuff going on, too. I really need to work, but I've also got a life, and I've got grandchildren, and I've got a wife, and all of those need attention as well. So I just, you know, put the attention in the, you know, on the, at, the, at the top of the list, and all of those things, wife, grandchildren, all at the top of the list, not at the bottom of the list, and then my work just will have to get done however it gets done. And if I got to walk into the presentation and just make it up on the spot, well, I'll just have to do that, you see, and that'll just have to work that way. I won't have any slides or this and that, but it'll all work out. You know, it, by the end of the day, you know, it'll be okay. So I don't, I get some pressure sometimes, but basically I deal with it by just picking and choosing those things that are most important, like family and grandkids, and my wife, and then letting everything else fill in as best I can. Sometimes that means I'm up at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning still working, you know, and then I got to get up at 6 o'clock the next morning and, and get to work. But you pay a price for that as well. If you do it too often, you pay a price for it. So it's just a matter of juggling things. So that's the one kind of stressor I have in my life is way too much to do and way too little time to do it in. And that tends to create pressure and stress, but I, I tend to deal with it. All right. It's uh, it's pressure there, but I know that however it works out, it'll be okay. It's not like there's going to be a disaster. It would be more of a disaster if I said, 
sorry, sweetheart, I have to work all day today. I know it's Mother's Day, but I've got a lot of work to do. So, you know, that would be a disaster. But uh, walking onto stage in front of 500 people and talking with absolutely no idea what I'm going to say, I can probably pull that one out, you see. So that's not a disaster. And it's if it is, it's only my disaster. It's not a disaster for somebody else. So that's how I, you know, you just have to cope with what it is you have to cope with. Life is not always just the way you'd like to have it. You know, I'd like to have a lot more free time, but uh, it is what it is, and you do the best you can with it. Is, is there one thing that you can um, that you can suggest or give advice to in terms of letting go of entropy, getting rid of lowering entropy, and letting go of fear? Like, what's the best way to do that? Well, the thing that is most important about that process is that you really want to do it as opposed to you think you should do it. Those are two different approaches, two different attitudes. If you have the idea of getting rid of fear is a good thing, I really need to do that. I should work on that. I should go find fears and get rid of them because that's a good thing for me to do. You won't be nearly as successful as if you have the attitude I want to get rid of this fear. Really, I'm going to get rid of this fear. Not because you think you should, but because you are going to do it. That's different. And if you have that attitude that you're going to do it, there's not an if, not a when, you are going to do it, and you're going to keep working at it until it's done, you will get it done much faster then if you think about it intellectually and say, well, I should do this and I should work on it and here's what I'll do and here's my plan. See, if it's all intellectual, now you're, you're acting and it's a, it's a much weaker approach than if you're really committed. The same is true of people getting over um, addictions. You know, if you smoke cigarettes and you want to get rid of, you want to stop smoking, if in your mind you say, well, I should stop, you know, nobody likes it. You know, I smell bad. Uh, you know, my breath smells bad. I have to go outside. It's really an annoying habit. And I would, I ought to get rid of it because, you know, it's uh, my associations with other people just don't support it. It'd be better for me to get rid of it. With that attitude, you'll have terrible withdrawals. The withdrawals will last for a long time. But if you have the attitude, I ain't going to quit. It's just not a good thing to do, and I'm not going to do it. Now you will probably have no withdrawals or maybe just very minor ones, and it'll just disappear, and you'll just be done with it. You see, there's a big difference between those two. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and with addiction, I've, I used to be a chain smoker and, and gave that up after a few different attempts. And then actually in my early 20s, I was addicted to crystal meth, and gave up that um, after a few attempts. Now the addiction I'm working with is sugar. I'm I've attempted a couple times, as you know, and it, it's it's such a, it's harder than any of those other addictions. And I'm it's, yeah, then I get hard on myself. And why is it yeah. so hard? <laughs> yeah, well, it's so hard because you're trying to work at it from your intellect, and you need to work at it from the bean level. You need to just give it up without any reason needing to be given, not because you should, but just because you want to. And when you're really committed to it, things get a lot easier. And it's the same with getting rid of fears. It's the commitment is, is key. As long as it's intellectual, it's a, it's a weak reason. And you find ways to get around it and you 
kind of drop off the wagon and then, oh, okay, I'll just, just one candy bar, you know, it won't hurt anything. And it's, it, uh, it's really hard to, to get over unless you just decide to stop. And then you'll find that the um, withdrawals are not bad at all because you're committed. Thank you. Um, so I have a theory uh, that I'm practicing and I'm, I feel like maybe if I need to let go of more of my fear, lower my entropy a little bit more, the big fear I have is inadequacy. So maybe if I conquer that fear, then as a byproduct, I'll naturally want to just stop intaking sugar. Well, yes. I mean, it, once you get rid of uh, a major fear like inadequacy, a lot of other fears become a lot easier. That's true. That inadequacy keeps feeding your ego, and it's that ego that's the problem with being committed. That ego doesn't want to commit. So, um, yeah, that might work. That might work, but don't use that as an excuse to put off, you know, doing one. Well, I don't have to work for that. Ah, good. I'm going to eat my candy bars now until I get rid of this other thing. Then that's just an excuse. So it depends on how serious you are and, and uh, you know, what you're going to do. But do it however it comes to you is the best thing. Do what your intuition says. Don't let anybody tell you how to do it. Just do it the way it feels right to you. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Mm -hmm. Oh uh, yeah, speaking from experience, I know it's very, very difficult and and it, and busy as well. I mean, it's only going to get busier for Tom. I just don't know how he does it. Uh, listen, I have to say before we continue, it is really nice to be back doing the fireside chats after the time away. Please keep the questions coming in, uh, Justin. Thanks for the great job you do with the editing and getting them out each month um, and making me look better than I actually am. Um, <laughs> Laurie Houston, that's all I'm going to save on that. Right, on to the next question. Adam, your nipper has now woken up and you are uh, ready to ask your question, so it's all yours. Thanks. Thanks, Keith. And uh, hello, Tom, and hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. Yes, Tom. <laughs> Very early in the morning for you, isn't it, Adam? Me? No, no. It's uh, 3.41. It was nap time for the little kiddo. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm in Boston. Oh, okay. <clears throat> so uh, my first question is, um, I, I labeled it advanced parallel processing. And uh, I heard you once mention uh, sometimes you parallel process and will even have a consistent second, third, and very rarely even a fourth stream of consciousness, a uh, consistent stream going. And uh, my Mini question is, is this analogous to kind of living two lives at once at the same time? Um, yes, but it's key to say at the same time, not once, not jumping from one to the other. But uh, if you're really parallel processing, well, I say it another way. When the way that you parallel, the way you do parallel process is by a lot of quick sampling. In other words, if you've got four realities you're dealing with, what you're actually doing is working, you're giving a little bit of processor time to reality one, into two, into three, into four, into one, and you're just sampling through them quickly. That's the way computers do most of their parallel processing if it's a single processor. If you've got one processor and you've got four jobs, then that processor will just give a little bit of time to all four jobs and they'll all get done. Okay, so that's kind of the way it is. Your consciousness is like a single processor, and you're just fast, you're very quickly sampling through them, so they all seem to progress at the same time. But you are, you, it's a zero-sum game, you know. 
you can only spread yourself so thin through so many uh, reality frames. So that's the, that's kind of the, the, the basic uh, science of it is that you're one processor. You're not like six processors, each one doing a different job. You're one processor having a timeshare over a bunch of jobs. So now I'm wondering, my, my next question on the same uh, topic is, how did you personally begin that second consistent stream? So going from just sporadically parallel processing to kind of saying, uh, you know, I want to keep a consistent stream going. And then the what situation might that be profitable for growth? You know, how, how does that kind of help your growth? Out? Okay. I think when I first started parallel, parallel processing, it was because I was doing healing and People would come and ask me, you know, about their aunt Sadie who was, you know, had this problem or that problem. And as they were talking, I started to do the healing process. I, I was having a conversation. And at the same time, I was taking a look at, uh, you know, aunt Sadie and her issues and her physical systems and the problems going and where that problem came from. And was it a part of her learning curve or was it something outside? Uh, that could work on and kind of getting an idea of, of uh, what needed to be done. And then I actually start the, uh, after the diagnosis, start the healing process. And meanwhile, I've been having a conversation with this person at the same time. I've been answering their questions and, you know, we've, we've been talking back and forth. So I think that was where I started doing the parallel processing. That was the, the situation that kind of pulled me into it. Otherwise, I would have listened to that person. They would have told me all about their, their Aunt Sadie, and then later I would have gone to work on Aunt Sadie. It would have been a you know serial process. I wouldn't have done them both at the same time. But I found that I could do them both at the same time, and it actually saved me a lot of trouble because when I would see things that uh, were kind of odd, I could ask them a question. Oh, does your Aunt Sadie have you know three heads? You know, I'm seeing somebody with three heads. So you could you get a little feedback that way that you wouldn't have otherwise. And, and, uh, that was helpful. So then I started doing that all the time and the more I did it, the easier it got and the better I got at it. So it became a, a thing that just seems like you're doing both at the same time because it's only two and you can, you can uh, share resources between two with hardly even noticing the loss to either one. At least it doesn't get down more than about 50-50. And you can carry on a conversation with about 50% of your attention. That's not too hard mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. So that kind of uh, – that answer kind of leads into the, leads into the next question, which um, in a nutshell, it's what is uh, – let me just read the whole thing. It seems that there are uh, certain logical changes in behavior – in PMR, when one grows to become love, for instance, it would be uh, an example is not patronizing the meat injury uh, or the meat industry. You know, if, if one is making decisions based off other, in almost all circumstances, they will cease to buy meat from the store. And I know you make the you talk about being an ethical vegetarian. And so I'm wondering when one becomes love. Is there any logical implications on activity and non-physical reality that is comparable to this PMR behavior change? 
So for instance, one gains the skill to change the future probability or to heal others simply through uh, intent. However, it seems largely that messing with the future or manipulating it to be how you want is not a loving or wise choice. So where then is the profitable growth-based opportunity when you find yourself skilled with uh, NPMR things, you know, phenomena and skills? Okay. If the skills are the point, then you probably don't have any growth from them. If the, if the skills are the main thing, but if the skills are just a side issue, you know, if the skills are just something that you can do because you've grown up and you don't have to apply them unless a situation comes up that you really feel like you should or want to apply them, but you don't just go around rearranging reality to suit you. You see mm-hmm. that, that now is your focus is I've got this skill. I can, you know, I can use it. And the skill is the main thing. But if the main thing is growing up and caring and people, then you don't really use those skills unless your intuition tells you, well, this would be a good time to do that. And that happens more and more rarely because you eventually realize, like you said, that most of the time it's pretty much the way it ought to be anyway. You know, those are those are lessons. Those are things for those people to deal with and for you to jump into that game and change it is basically uh, attending to their ego. You know, they may call you up and say, oh, I've got this problem. Can you fix it for me? Well, if you fix it for them, now they'll no longer learn how to fix it for themselves. And they won't longer, they, they will no longer learn how to deal with it being unfixed. It won't help them grow up or spur them to any, you know, bigger ideas. So you're just helping their ego out. They feel better. They'd like to feel better but you're not helping them grow and feeling better. Isn't what it's all about. It's about growing up, you see? So for that reason, you tend to just let things be, you don't do it. And sometimes it's just the opposite. Sometimes a situation comes and you think, wow, I really should help here. You know, you get the feeling that if you help here, you will be increasing the growth possibilities and the growth potentials. Whereas before you just be getting in the way. So you can tell the difference between those things, but those ones that are really helpful and it's going to help reduce entropy to those individuals and the, you know, into the system, those are much fewer and farther between than, than you might think. Most of the time it has more to do with somebody's ego and making them feel better. Getting rid of one of their worries, which is typically they're worried because of their fear. So they've got a fear which gives them a worry and they want you to fix it for them. There's very little virtue in that. But sometimes there is. Sometimes maybe they're so deep in their own worry that they're lost. And if you just give them a break, they could get out of it. But if you give them that break and they don't get out of it, they just find something else to worry about, eh, then the next time you're not so willing to even give them a break because that's really not what they need. What they need is to have to deal with what they have to deal with. So it depends. So if your focus is on growing up and helping and and caring, and not, I can do this stuff, I've got these skills, then you'll be fine. You'll use them when you need to use them, and you'll let them go when you need to let them go. Cool. It, maybe to bring it back to something you said earlier, uh, a, like about an opportunistic time to, to maybe use a healing skill. Let's say it's, uh, like you said, 
a child that's born, um, you know, with a high chance of retardation and it wouldn't be, doesn't seem to be a good thing for the parents. Like if this were to turn out this way, like the parents would de-evolve and, and it would be a really bad thing for the family or something. And maybe you have the opportunity to, opportunity to help the child along, you know, maybe uh, skip a major illness. And that would be a wise thing because the parents would then have the opportunity to grow way more than if it was the other way. Yeah, right. Typically what I find is if the problem is a, his source is in randomness. It's just something that happened. So you talk about retardation. If the reason that happened was just because of a fluke, uh, you know, random thing that happened when all that very complex biology, you know, gets together, all that brain chemistry and all that, well, you just, you know, randomness means that most of the people will be normal, right? But there'll be a few people out on one end of the curve that'll be genius and a few back on the other end of the curve, they're going to be retarded. And that's just the way it is when you have a thousand random variables is that you're going to get a statistical distribution of different kinds of people. And if the reason that this retardation is there is just because they just happen to fall out on that, you know, on that side of the curve, just randomness, those are easy to change. Those are easy to fix. And those are the ones that if you fix them, everybody generally wins. On the other hand, if the reason they're having this is because it's an experience that everybody needs to have, you know, the, the, the child that's retarded, that's an experience they need to have. And the parents, that's an experience they need to have. If that's the case, then they're harder to fix. And eventually you, you realize that they're not really the ones that you want to fix, you know, that they, so going back to the source and seeing what's the, you know, what, what is the problem here? What's the source of the problem? You know, did somebody just happen to be at the wrong place at the wrong time and standing next to somebody else, you know, on the subway that sneezed and they got the virus. Now they got a cold. Well, that's more, that's just random stuff that happens. Easy to get rid of and everybody wins if you get rid of it. On the other hand, if they're just working too hard and they're busy and not paying attention to anyone, they're ignoring their family, they're ignoring their work, they're getting all wound up in the details and they get sick. Well, they need that sick because that's going to slow them down and, and refocus them on things that are more important because they've gotten all wadded up. So that sickness, you just let alone. They get it in a different place. And that's one of the things that you have to find out is, you know, where does it come from? Why is it like that? So that's that's really an important step of the process is to really uh, check and double check what's going on before you kind of step in, especially if you've had objective uh, confirmation that when you do step in, things happen. So now it's double and triple check. Absolutely. And if you can't determine uh, what that issue is, if you can't determine what the source is, then just go slowly. You know, don't, you just go, just move slowly. And if you see you're doing more harm than good, quit. If you see you're doing more good than harm, then keep working. That's funny. I, the go slowly for that just clicked in my head. It's like, uh, I feel I've only had one, uh, you know, intensity. I feel like whenever I try and do something, I'm always just pouring it on. So probably a good idea to adjust uh, intensities. Well, intensities of intent, I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah, you just have to have a bigger picture. So that's the, uh, you know, that's that's the thing. You have to have the bigger picture of what's going on. It's not just changing things in the reality. You have to see yourself as an actor that's that's 
that's modifying uh, future probability and modifying entropy, either reduction or gain. And you don't want to be, you know, making it harder for people to grow up by taking their lessons away. So you 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 just if you're not sure, then just go go slowly and see how it works. Because you'll find the ones where they have a lesson to learn and you should leave it alone. Those are more resistant. You work on those and they push back. Whereas the ones that are just by chance, there's no pushback. It's just open. That's why I say they're easier to work with because there isn't any pushback. Okay, great, great. I, that's, uh, that helps me a lot. <laughs> I'm glad that helps. Okay, the next question is from MBT Forum user Peter. Uh, hi, Tom. Are weariness, indolence, and listlessness properties of the ego, or are they located at the being level? Are they topics which can be outgrown as part of developing our level of consciousness, and are they properties carried over from earlier incarnations? Mm, you know, the answer to that's all of the above. You know, it depends on the situation. Uh, they can be part of the being level. They can be part of the intellectual level. Um if uh, they are an expression of a um, lower quality of consciousness that just can't, uh, you know, get connected with other people or other things, um, then that could be that you come in with it, with that proclivity. You wouldn't come in with indolence. You just come in with a proclivity that may then express itself as indolence later on. So it could be any of those things. It, uh, it's not just one way to end up uh, kind of in the doldrums and, and uh, uh, kind of dead-ended. Um, there's lots of reasons or lots of ways that that could uh, come about. All right, Tom, thank you. And next one is from Travis. Um, Tom, I'm a little lost with what imagination means in the MBT model. The term original thought comes to mind, but also the idea of there being no original thought. If our imagination is just a foggy, waking look into the mighty NPMR database, then does that mean that any possible thought, no matter how outrageous it might be, has actually already once occurred at some point in NPMR? Well, because we have free will, we're all unique. So your thoughts are your own unique thoughts. Now... I suspect that by now, after the you know billions and billions of people uh, who have uh, been in this same virtual reality trainer that we're in, it's probably hard to come up with a thought that nobody's had one that was similar to it. But your own thought is unique. Your free will, your background, your history, you know, your accumulated uh, growth. All of that's unique to you. So you're unique. Your thoughts are unique. Um, but I suspect they could be categorized by similarity with millions of other thoughts. So, yes, people have felt, you know, unsettled just like you feel unsettled. It's not like being unsettled is, a, is an original feeling. It's not. But being unsettled in the exact same way that you are for the exact same reasons probably doesn't happen, though. If you get enough people and you look at the statistics, there will be some that will be similar to yours, some more similar than less, but you're still going to be uh, a unique player. 
All right, thanks, Tom. Um, the next one from Lucky. Um, he says, Tom, in a line from MBT book two, you say, and I quote, a poor quality of life is the inevitable result of a poor quality of consciousness. But in this instance, what does poor quality of life actually mean? Is it related to financial weakness or poverty? For example, a person who is living in poverty because of the constraints, say disability, mental or physical illness or poverty, uh, who are living a low quality of life, say financially weak, or because of the choices they made, bad decisions out of ignorance, low awareness, or a little picture view. Um, so the available options he has in his awareness of time because of the constraints put him into a situation that he has to live a low quality of life. And it's hard now and struggling to improve the present situation, to become financially strong, to live a better life. So does this imply then that he has a poor quality of consciousness? What advice do you have on how he could and should deal with this life? Yeah. Well, when I said that... Um... Uh, when I made that statement in, in the very beginning, the poor quality of life has absolutely nothing to do with your financial uh, situation. You know, that's not what I was talking about at all. You can be, you know, a billionaire and have a very poor quality of life. Um, poor quality of life means that you are have a lot of you have a lot of negative feelings. You have fears. You have uh, ego. And the fear and the ego dominate your life. When fear and ego dominate your life, your life is low quality. doesn't matter how much money there is in the bank. That's not the issue. You can be uh, very wealthy and be unhappy and miserable. And you can be very poor and be unhappy and miserable. And the rich or poor has nothing to do with that. I'm talking about the quality of consciousness being the amount of fear, ego, and belief that you're struggling with. That's what creates a poor quality of life. So, no, it doesn't have anything to do with, with uh, you know, how many cars are in the garage or, you know, how much you have to eat at night. That's not the point. You can be very, very poor and still have a high quality of life and still learn a great deal and still have a, you know, low entropy, be a low entropy being. Wealth doesn't, uh, doesn't help there. Wealthy people don't get high quality uh, lives because they're wealthy. They just get a lot of convenience because they're wealthy. They just get lots of cars and boats and big houses and other things that wealthy people have. But that doesn't make them happy. It doesn't make them satisfied. It doesn't make them uh, grow up any. It doesn't reduce their entropy any just because they have that stuff. It, uh, those having a lot of stuff has its own, has its own um, downside as far as growing up goes. And... You know, not having much stuff can have some downside too. If you're have if you're working three jobs, and only sleeping you know six hours, it's really hard to think a whole lot about dealing with uh, you know your fears or anything else. You're you're going like a hundred percent of the time and exhausted the rest of the time. That's a tough situation too. So all situations have their upsides and downsides. The upside of being poor is that you don't have all these responsibilities and so many people picking at you all the time. You kind of have your own downtime to do and think and be the way you are. Lots of time for introspection and, and, and growth. Uh, the busier you are, you know, these people who make huge salaries often work huge hours as well. Sometimes not, but sometimes they do. And uh, that's a, you know, that's a, a downside there, so. Nothing to do with, with uh, material wealth or situation. All right, Tom. 
Thank you, Tom, for clearing that up for uh, for them. Um, Adam, we're going to go back to you. <clears throat> hey, Tom. Um, I'm wondering, c- could you give any examples of decisions that are made on an uh, on an our system level? You know, an OS level. Or what type of decisions are made? You know, by uh, when you're managing an entire uh, PMR, we'll say. Okay. Now, what he's talking about for those people listening that don't know, you know, the the words there, that there is uh, PMR, which is a physical matter reality. That's our physical universe. But then there is a, a little higher level of that is all the physical. We have that, the physical universe, plus we have all the non-physical things that are associated with our physical universe. They're kind of a part of a, of a larger system that has both physical and non-physical things going on in it. So that's the our system he's talking about. Well, there's a lot of things there, uh, Adam, that uh, would be important for um, a manager uh, you know, to be aware of. One, you have to have some rules about how those two can interact. You know, the, thing, the interactions that can go back and forth and, and uh, you know, what, what are the limits? to that interaction. So that would be a, a thing that management would, would talk about. Uh, you also have to look at trends and where, where things are going. How is, the, how is the simulation progressing? Is it still uh, a good simulator? Is it starting to uh, move past the point of, you know, of uh, return for maybe turning into a bad simulator? And if so, what is it that you can do to help move it back the other way? So there are some things that you can do that are not making free will choices for somebody else. You know, they're not interfering with other people's choices. But there are things you can do to help balance, uh, to help keep uh, the non-physical from having too much of an impact on the physical when that impact isn't wanted, when that impact is, uh, is um, you know, not asked for. Uh, there's lots of things like that to see that the system is running and it's not, uh, you know, it's it's not gaining in entropy. It's a good trainer and it's balanced and it's working well for the people in it. And part of the part of the people in it is also the non-physical parts of those people and the things that they're doing and how they're interacting with the system. You know, that's why we have uh, rules like the um, science certainty principle. See, that's not really a rule set rule. It's not part of the rule set. That's more company policy. You know, that's because if that rule wasn't made by management, then we would probably not have as good or as an effective an entropy reduction trainer. So it's important that, uh, you know, we have certain, certain rules. Well, that would be one of the things that management would impose. And management could change that. So at a point when all of us are a lot more grown up, then that science certainty could kind of, you know, not be nearly, you know, enforced as much and could be kind of let go. You wouldn't need it then, but you need it now. So those kinds of things. There's there's a balance to keep, I guess, primarily, and and uh, things to look out for and and uh, rules to enforce. Just- just to that's that's really great first of all but just to clarify <clears throat> you're saying that um, they could make decisions involving the actual you know PMR rule set whether to be like 
uh, you know, just as an example, tick down greenhouse gases because it buys another hundred years or so, you know, a long-term decision like that physically. But then there also can be decisions made non-physically, you know, maybe an example being like some kind of mass hysteria is spreading, you know, actual like a endemic of panic around like a very large group of people, maybe to change a large group of thought pattern just to like calm the situation or, or I mean, am I, am I on the right path of kind of thinking yeah. of examples? Yeah. It, it's like that kind of a thing, but you want to take a very, you want to have a very light touch. If you're the manager here, you want to have a very light touch. You don't want to be intrusive. You don't want to override other people's free wills, but that still leaves some room for maneuvering without doing either of those things and things that are random that, uh, you know, it's just, it's just time for a big earthquake to happen. All right. You know, it's been, uh, we know anywhere in the next 300 years, we're going to get the big one right out on the West coast. Well, if that turns out to come at a really bad time, you know, just when people are getting things together, you know, put us back into chaos. Well, the system may just intervene there because nobody would notice that none interfere with anybody's free will. It just buys a little extra time. You probably couldn't put it off forever because now you maybe you're going a little too far, but uh, you can manipulate certain things like that. Yes. Without notice so that nobody really notices things that have a lot of uncertainty around them. You can, you could manipulate. You may even be able to quell a, a, a panic that was spreading just by not letting it spread quite so fast. You just might have a bad thunderstorm in that area that knocked down the, you know, the telephone lines so that the, you know, it couldn't spread for two or three hours, which would be just enough to take the edge off or something could happen, but it would have to be done in a way that nobody could tell that anything was done at all, but it can do some things that uh, look like it was just random event and nobody notices, but it does have a balancing effect. Now, the manager is not to force an outcome. That's not the point. It's not controlling the situation or even how it goes. It's just trying to keep it, you know, balanced. So, and there's some discretion there, but the, the, the general rule is light touch, if any touch at all. Only do the things you have to do and only to the smallest degree possible. They don't want to really interfere with the results of free will. But you see, whether an earthquake comes up or not, it's really not so much a result of free will. You know, it's not like that depends, that's modifying something that we've done. Now, greenhouse gases, well, now you're starting to modify, you know, the, what people have done. You're modifying their own consequences. Now you're changing, you know, it's like healing somebody of a, of a, of a headache they have. It makes them feel better, but you take away their need to deal with it. So if you... Get rid of greenhouse gases. Now you're kind of meddling in our game because you're changing the consequences of our actions. And now that's not a fair game anymore. So it probably would not do that kind of thing, but it could do other things that were not meddling in our consequences that would, uh, you know, be a lot gentler touch that it could do. But still, it tends to not act unless it has little other choice unless it's really something that's going to damage the system's ability to work. Mm -hmm. And um, 
a little bit earlier, you said uh, <clears throat> if the system grew up to such a point that uh, the restrictions of the psi uncertainty principle might be relieved a little bit or, or even, you know, mm-hmm. taken out thereof. And uh, this always had such implicant, interesting implications to me, especially a lover of uh, sci-fi. I would, I fantasized this whole, you know, sci-fi novel series of technology, uh, you know, developed without the science certainty principle coming in the way. And so I guess my question to you is, you know, would it be possible then to uh, develop technology that interfaces, you know, physical technology, manipulation of electricity or whatever, that interfaces now with the non-physical phenomena that the, you know, would be kind of allowed with the science certainty principle uh, lifted? Yeah, there would be. There could be a lot more. Uh, you know, what would what you could do is make the the uh, process where your intent modifies future probability. You could make that a uh, uh, let's say an easier process where you could modify future probability more readily. It wouldn't be as um, as difficult a process. You'd make the rule set a little more uh, a little wider, if you will. So. Yeah, there are things that you could do like that. It's possible. But I bet in all the sci-fi books that you've ever read that uh, even though they may have people with their minds can control all kinds of things, you know, uh, in violation of what we would see as a sci uncertainty, I bet you've never read a book in sci-fi where all the people were grown up and full of love and caring for each other. It's always a book about fear and ego and belief and greed and all of that stuff, right? Because that's the only kind of book we can write because that's the only thing we know. Uh, nobody uh, has experienced that, that other world where it's full of kindness and peace and caring. So you don't have books like that. So those are things that are a little inconsistent with us that, that uh, in our situation, we wouldn't have that. As long as you've got all this fear and ego and belief, running rampant in the world, you're not going to have um, the the sigh, you know, uh, being a, a major thing that can be that can be used. 